This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Leif Babin. Now, Leif is the co-author of Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership and co-founder of Echelon Front. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood in Texas, his journey into the Navy, working alongside Jocko Willink in the SEAL teams, leadership in the first responder community, the fallacy of overnight success, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Leif Babin. Enjoy. Well, Leif, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. I reached out to you guys, I think it was almost six years ago, and we were just talking before we hit record. I've had you know so many of your Echelon Front brothers on the show, and sisters, I had Jamie as well, um, and uh, obviously you've always been someone I wanted to bring on also, so thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. James, thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you. I know we've talked about doing it for a long time, and and uh, I'm sorry I haven't haven't made it happen before now. But you've had some great guests on, and uh, I really appreciate what you do. You know, I think just your call to service and your story is amazing uh, about following your dream to you know be a first responder and, and a firefighter, and and I think you know now trying to pass on the lessons that you've learned about longevity and health and and uh, you know just your physical fitness and well being uh, through your story and to help make others better. I think is is awesome. I think it's an incredibly noble cause and uh, appreciate what you do and honor beyond with you. Well, thank you so much. Obviously, you know, I adore Echelon Front as well for that same reason. You know, we need the real leaders of the world to step up, especially after this last two years. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, so I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in Houston, Texas. Uh, my dad was in dental school at the time. He had... Uh, served in the army. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he, he had, he had, uh, gone back to school as, um, he actually flunked out of school and uh, was about to get, get drafted and sent to Vietnam. And so, um, my dad, uh, served in the, in the national guard, uh, for a few years and realized that, look, I need to, I need to go get serious about school. And, uh, it was a real wake up call, I think for him. Um, and he went back to school after his time in the army and, uh, I, I don't think he made a single B. It, it was uh, it was straight A's after that. 
uh, going back to school and he found his way to dental school, which my grandfather, uh, his dad had been a dentist. Uh, the first member of his family would go to go to uh, college. He'd use the GIB bill after serving in, uh, in World War II. And so my dad followed his footsteps to be a dentist uh, and was going to dental school in um, at the University of Texas Dental School in Houston, uh, where I was born. I have an older sister who's uh, just 16 months older than me. So we were, we were very close. Uh, always growing up, she she's uh, she she roughed me up hard for the first uh, couple of years of my life, and I had to had to stand up for myself and teach her a lesson. It's uh, <laughs> it's gone my way ever since, uh, but she's awesome. And then uh, we had um, uh, we we moved to Germany, so my dad uh, was in the, was in the Air Force. Air Force, uh, he was on Air Force scholarship to dental school, and so uh, he was stationed in Ramstein, Germany, for three years. And we could travel around Europe. We did a stand about six months in the UK. Uh, at uh, Air Force Base, we did a stint uh, about, for about six months in, in uh, outside of Athens in Greece and uh, traveled all around Europe. I got all these amazing pictures and I really don't remember any of it, James. I was I was uh, not even three years old when, when we moved back to the States. So uh, we moved back to the States. My mom was pregnant with twins. And so my younger brother and sister were born. Um, and then about eight years after the twins were born, uh, my uh, my baby sister was born. So there's five of us total, three girls, two boys. And, um, and it was just, I, I grew up, my family lived in Beaumont, Texas, which is where my mom and dad's family uh, was all from. And uh, we moved about an hour north of there to a little town called Woodville, Texas, really small town, about 3000 people. And it was just an incredible place to grow up, an amazing community of people. And, um, you know, it really took me going far from home uh, to places like Iraq with that, that community. There was people ship, ship us care packages and send us letters. And I mean, they sent so much stuff. Uh, I bet they accounted for 40% of the stuff that got shipped to Task Unit Bruiser, um, you know, just from the little town of, of Woodville where I'm from. Just an amazing place to grow up, incredible people, awesome community. And uh, I grew up, you know, with a mom and dad that were uh, happily married and, and raised me right. And they certainly were tough and and uh, and were, were the disciplinarians that they needed to be for uh, a wild man like me. I'm just now getting some getting to really experience that with with the uh, kids of my own. I have two boys and, and a girl. And uh and look, they push the limits on stuff. They're just like me. And my mom says, you know, I deserve every every second of that uh, and more. So she just kind of laughs at me when I, I started complaining about it. But um, great place to grow up. My parents really set an amazing standard for me. And um, and and so I grew up in the woods running around and uh, we we played, you know, it, it was it was army, uh, you know, all kinds of target assaults and, and combat, uh, simulated combat in the woods around around my house where I grew up in the Piney Woods of East Texas. Uh, around Woodville, and um, and we played Indians. We played a lot of Indians too. No, not cowboys and Indians. It was just always Indians. That's who we wanted to be. So, uh, great place to grow up. And I always knew I wanted to be in the military. So I followed that path and and uh, went to the Naval Academy from there. So just going back to your grandfather for a second, I think one of the most heartbreaking things for me is discovering podcasting or even even that medium really kind of coming up is it happened right when we lost most of our world war ii veterans already and then we're having this whole mental health conversation um i was extremely fortunate to get a guy who is one of the original marine raiders on iwo jima uh, frank wright and he's still thriving to this day and very very open about you know, not only his service, but the mental and physical wounds that he brought home. He was uh, wounded on, on Iwo Jima itself. Did, did you get to speak to your grandfather or even through your dad about his transition out? I mean, obviously, he became a successful professional in the, in the dental world. But what about everything, you know, the other elements of that? 
Yeah, I mean, he was he was proud of his service, certainly, you know, and uh, and and he didn't get to serve on Iwo Jima, you know, or, or you know, some of the horrific combat that uh, that other people uh, got to see him or a part of. Um, but he certainly served in uniform, and and uh, as did my other grandfather, you know, my mom's side uh, as well. And I never got to know him; he died when I was just six months old. Um, but growing up with, with my grandfather in that World War II generation, it was just um, it was they were proud of their service. It was just. You know, they loved America and they, and they were, incre- you know, just incredibly grateful for the opportunity. Um, my dad's dad um, that we're talking about was, I mean, he was a, a Cajun, grew up in a in a, a little town called Brobridge, Louisiana. His family moved over to uh, uh, Port Arthur, Texas, uh, to work in the refineries there back during the Great Depression. His older brother was the only kid in the entire family that that had a job uh, and basically paid the way for the entire family, the entire extended family, you know, through the Great Depression. So I think, you know, for World War II, it just offered him an opportunity to serve. And the GI Bill offered him an opportunity to, to go to college and and then to go on to, to the dental school uh, and make something of himself. And I think that's, uh, it was just a real appreciation for the opportunities in America uh, that were offered, you know, and I think it's something that's sorely lacking today, you know, as well. Um, I think the you know, those were things that that I, I definitely got to talk to him about friends that he lost and and uh, people he served with, particularly as I started having interest in the military. You know, and in my parents' generation too, James, it was uh, eye opener for me. I think it was the first airplane flight I ever took. Or I I obviously flew as a little kid, you know, flying back and forth to Ramstein, Germany. But as a, the the first flight I really remember um, as as a young man, I think I was like thirteen, and we flew up to uh, Washington D.C. for a trip to visit the Capitol and go to the Smithsonian and. And we went to the Vietnam Memorial and my parents uh, walked up to the wall and, you know, and they've got the book there where you can identify, you know, people by, uh, by, alpha, you know, alpha, alphabetized names. And, and they, I, they, I mean, they pulled up dozens of people that they'd gone to school with and middle school and high school and college uh, that had been killed in the Vietnam War. And it was kind of the, the first eye opener for me of just how impactful that war was uh, on, on their entire generation, you know, and, and so many families and friends, you know, who've been lost. So um if anything, that kind of drew me toward military service, right? The idea that people are going to, that, that, that want to serve, want to wear the uniform and are willing to go out and sacrifice, uh, you know, just as you do on, on the first responder side as well. I think it takes a, a special kind of person to want to do that. I'm one of five, I'm the only one of five siblings that decided to go to the military route, but that's all I ever wanted to do from the time that I can ever remember wanting to do anything. Now, why Indians? Because, I mean, normally you, you think of people as the cowboys, as the good guys, Indians are the bad guys, and you actually learn real American history and you realize it's a little bit more complicated than that. But for you, you know, growing up in the town that you did, what made the game purely Indians? You know what? We always uh, just had tremendous respect and admiration for Native American culture. My dad is a real student of history. And, uh, you know, particularly you, you, you'd you find artifacts, you know, along the creek bottoms or, or river, uh, um, you know, the high bluffs along riverbanks. And, you, you know, you'd find stone artifacts, arrowheads and, and spear points, uh, things that are thousands of years old, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, pottery uh, shards and things like that. And just talk about, you know, the, the cultures that that lived here and existed before, you know, Columbus landed, you know, in the Americas. And and uh, and just we were always fascinated by that. You know, it was always something just the. The uh, we we had war paint on. We made uh, breech cloths out of like the brown or red towels that we you know were under my uh, the the kids sink in the in the kids bathroom and uh, and of course nothing under that right just the just a leather belt and uh, and and a breech cloth with a towel running around the woods with war paint on and with our bows and arrows. Um, it's just what we all did uh, and we we loved it and it was it was really out of kind of just purely affection and admiration for Native American cultures. 
Um, I grew up about 50 minutes, uh, 50 miles down the road from the Alabama Cushata Reservation as well. Uh, so I went to school with a lot of a lot of Native Americans uh, from the reservation. There, great people. Played football with them and ran track with them. And um, you know, we'd go to their powwows, uh, you know, in, in the summertime, and it was awesome. Just uh, need to participate in that. See, that's something that I've doing this podcast. So much of this is unlearning what we were taught, whether it's nutrition or the way that you know you're supposed to exercise, or even some of our history. And you talked about you know that that desire to serve. I feel that one of the issues that we have is the disregarding of history. And it's not just this younger generation. I think it's the way that we were taught too in some areas. And now you start looking at Native American wisdom and the way that they govern, for example. Sebastian Junger talks a lot about the Iroquois. And then you look at the way, you know, the, the ayahuasca ceremonies and how that's helping a lot of the SEAL community. And you look at, you know, the way that we used to farm and, and so many of these ancient cultures that clearly were doing something right because it lasted thousands of years was kind of all disregarded really around the industrial revolution. And I feel like a lot of us are kind of refinding that now. And I think the native American voice is so important to hear from, you know, an absolute spectrum of reasons. Yeah. History's complex. Uh, history's a complicated thing. And I think, you know, a lot of times, particularly modern history, we kind of simplify things down to kind of one side or the other. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, I, I think it's, I, I love studying history. I think it's, you know, from a leadership perspective, I've always been a student of history and, and just, just constantly trying to learn and read about things. And it's, it's amazing to me how complex uh, things actually are, you know, um, whether you're talking about the, the slavery issue in America, I mean, I just read a book, um, uh, it, it was the, it's the autobiography of Booker T. Washington called Up From Slavery. One of the best books I've ever read in my entire life, James. It's unbelievable. And, and I think every American should read this book. I mean, just, um, you know, he doesn't use the word extreme ownership in that book, but that's oh, that's the entire concept, right? This mindset of like, he's not going to point fingers and cast blame about the hand that was dealt from him. He was born into slavery on a plantation in Virginia, but he he was determined to make something of himself, to educate himself, and then to take what he learned and pass it on to, uh, you know, to to the, the the people of his kind and and uh, and his race and try to elevate them in America. And he did that. He launched the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, just a fascinating person, an incredible leader, uh, and um, you know, just just awesome. It's just awesome to read his experiences, you know, written down firsthand by him. You don't have to read in a story and talking about him. You can read what he has to say, and, and I think it's the same thing for Native American cultures too. There's uh, you know, the, there's a real history in Texas. There's some, um, you know, there's certainly, uh, um, there's, there's, it, it's everywhere you go. I mean, there's, there, you know, from the, um, you know, from the, the names of places to, um, you know, the, the artifacts that you find, as I said, along the creek beds or, you know, uh, uh, river bottoms and, and, and high bluffs and, pl and places like that. Um, but, but there's a, like the Alabama Cushata Reservation was, um, it, it was, it was, that land was given to the Alabama Cushata tribes that were driven out of, of the Eastern United States uh, under the leadership of Sam Houston, who's, who really was the, you know, he was the first president of the Texas Republic and the, um, um, and the, uh, the first governor of Texas. And he, uh, he actually was a, a member of the Cherokee tribe. So very close, you know, was really went to bat uh, for, for a lot of these Indian tribes under, uh, against you know, other, uh, other, other Anglo uh, Texans. And he lost those battles, but he fought very hard. Da Davy Crockett's another one as well, too. He, he literally was run out of Congress because of his opposition to uh, Andrew Jackson's uh, uh, in Indian policies. 
uh, of, of basically, you know, the, the, the trail of tears and, and running, uh, you know, pushing people, uh, out of their native lands. And, and, and David Crockett took a big stance against that in Congress. And, and so after he, he lost his, his election, his famous quote was, you may all go to hell and I will go to Texas. And of course he died at the Alamo, uh, fighting for Texas independence. So very, uh, always very interesting things, you know, to read about and, and, uh, and to learn about. Um, and I think there's so many things that we can learn from Native American culture, uh, from so many cultures, you know, out there across the world. And it just takes a little bit to open your mind and and do do some digging into history and research, um, and 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 learn. And uh, there's always those lessons, you know, as Jocko talks about that famous Musashi quote, right? When you when you know the way, you see it in all things, and and you can see what makes people successful. Um, and and and. Uh, it's 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 all the same character traits, right? That we try to emulate, you know, uh, today. Well, firstly, my son is actually part Cherokee, and it's interesting. When he was born, my uh, his mother, my ex now, um, called me in tears when he was. Oh my goodness, he was probably about eighteen months old, so well into being on this planet, and uh, she she calls me saying um, the doctor says that he's got Down syndrome. And this wasn't her regular pediatrician. And so I calm her down, like, well, what is he saying? Why is he saying this? I always say he's got these features. And I'm like, the Mongols were the original Native Americans. They came over from Mongolia. That's why they have the, the Mongoloid features, a certain, you know, the, the eyelids, the way they are, and the high cheekbones. So tell this guy <laughs> that your son is actually part Cherokee, and that's what he's seeing. It's not Down syndrome. And that's exactly what it was. But he, he refused to believe it. I said, well, just take my son out that fucking <laughs> that doctor's office, and we'll, we'll come back when the normal doctor's there. But, but yeah, so, I mean, that's a very, very passionate thing for me because I literally have, you know, my son has, has that blood flowing through his veins. With the slavery thing, something that I've kind of, had an aha moment of recently as well is there's this very much the white people you know enslave the black people philosophy and some of the the less well-read people in this country when you look back and, and the british are a huge part of slavery the portuguese you know the french um and you look at slavery and those countries when it was going on i i kind of did some research on the uk at the height of slavery when the british were slaving you know going to the african nations um, being trading these slaves with Africans themselves and then going to the US, dropping off slaves, bringing back tobacco or whatever it was. Britain is one of its most poorest times in British history. So I think one of the big things as well that you don't hear is not everyone was benefiting from slavery. And there might have been an unconscious benefit that they weren't aware of, but most white Americans, almost European Americans at the time were not, you know, knowing about that and i think if they've been educated at the forefront hey we're going to enslave humans so that we can make some more money what do you think i'm sure most people being like absolutely not that's disgusting so you never hear that conversation in in the whole racial um you know back and forth that we see on television all the time it's a fascinating thing as i said just history is complex and obviously you know slavery is a horrible thing and it's it's uh um you know uh, thank god that uh at least in the in the West, that's been uh, largely eliminated. But of course, it's still going on in the world, right? There's millions of people that are enslaved in in some some shape or form, uh, even today. And I think uh, we kind of talk about that like it's something in the past, um, you know. And there's there's no question that there's some some uh, horrible, tragic uh, things that that took place. And yet, you know, you're talking about the UK. The UK, I think, was the very first country in the history of the world to outlaw slavery. I believe it was 1833. Um, and then it follows suit by France in 1848 or uh, somewhere around there, followed suit by the United States and at the end of the Civil War, you know, uh, so in 1865. So th- these are, um, 
uh, I mean, that's, you actually have to look at those things through the perspective lenses uh, that, that they're in. And, and I think that helps us make decisions, you know, going forward, but, but Booker T, Booker T Washington actually talks about that. He actually had a lot of pity for some of the slave owners as, as much as he reviled slavery and thought it was just a, a, an abhorrent practice and, and was vehemently opposed to it. And, uh, he, he, he expresses some pity about the, the damage that it did not only to slaves, but to, uh, actually the slave owners as well. It's, it's just a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, he felt like they were trapped in this in this scourge of society that they didn't really know how to get out of, you know, as well. So just a just an interesting perspective um, uh, to, to read. And, and I, I just I recommend that book to everybody. It's you know up from slavery is an incredible book. I hope Jocko uh, does a podcast on it. I think he will uh, here at some point. Um, we were just talking about that not too long ago. Brilliant. Well, I, I haven't read it myself, so I'm going to put that on my list. So thank you. Now, one more thing before we kind of lead you through your career journey. You talked about Woodville and that sense of community uh, to the point where you were getting, you know, packages sent to you. Where I live here is uh, a community. It's, it's a central recreational area and there's subdivisions around it. And there really is the kind of community that I think is missing in a lot, a lot of areas. I just happened to find this one by accident. What was it about that community and maybe the leadership of that community in Woodville that created that kind of um, philosophy that we need so much nationally at the moment? It's a great question. Uh, I, you know, patriotic people who love their country. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's it's certainly deep in the Bible belt. I mean, it's a, you know, very strong church um, uh, church communities, you know, and, and communities built around the church uh, growing up. That was a huge piece of, uh, of, uh, of, of, you know, of, of my, in fact, even, uh, the, a welcoming homecoming, we came back from, you know, the battle of Ramadi in 2006. Uh, my church had a big get together, get kind of invited the, a ton of people from the community to come and kind of welcome me back. It was, it was awesome, uh, an awesome thing. Um, and so even people that weren't members of the church, you know, came to the church and, and were a part of that at uh, First Baptist Church of Woodville uh, that, that I was a part of growing up since about the second or third grade. My dad was a, a deacon there um, in, in the church. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was just just a community that looked out for people. You know, we we would run around in the woods and play and go to neighbors houses and build forts and, you know, uh, catch fish and and uh, and crawdads in, in the creek. And, and we just the rule for my mom was. If, uh, if, if she had a whistle, she'd come outside and she would blow a whistle. We, we couldn't be far enough away where you couldn't hear the whistle. Uh, we violated that pretty regularly, but it was, uh, uh, but, but definitely, you know, it just meant that we could kind of, we were just free range, free range children running around, you know, in the woods all the time. And, and, um, and it was just a great place to grow up, people looking out for each other um, as well. And I remember getting disciplined by other parents, you know, who looked out for me as well, too. It was, uh, it was definitely a community effort, not, uh, not just for my folks. Yeah, I think that it, it takes a village element has been uh, lost a little bit. And I, I think the mentorship that we see with some of these great groups within communities is exactly the thing that we need to counter a lot of the issues. You know, if you're in an area, maybe, you know, some of the, the, the best known figures in that community happen to be on the criminal side you can counter that by being a mentor whether it's the the boxing club in in new york run by nypd or whether it's there's a, an amazing one here in florida where it's the fire service one and they remove the barrier to entry by giving these kids another way 
to you know focus their energy for free, removing that barrier. Um, and then some, some of them have been golden gloves boxers. Some of them, you know, many of the the fireside have become firefighters and paramedics, or they've realized that my stepson, that's not what I want to do, but at least I can check that off my list now. So I think that it, it takes a village hands-on kind of philosophy is something that really needs to be brought to the forefront again. I remember having some run-in with uh, our local police officers when I was being kind of a nut, wild man, knucklehead back in my high school days. And it wasn't the threat of like arresting me or, you know, charging me with something. They just said, Babin, you want me to call your dad? And I was like, no, sir. <laughs> I backed off that quick. So that was, uh, that was, you know, I, I think uh, having a healthy respect for authority is, uh, is important, you know, and I think that's, um, that's something that uh, it's, it's, it's been lost in a lot of generations, you know, for sure. Um, but I think uh, people that are introduced to, the challenges of being a first responder, you know, the challenges of being in the military, you know, those things are, it's even if they, even if kids don't follow that path, at least they can understand and respect, you know, the difficulties that it takes to, to do that job and that people are actually out there risking their lives um, to protect the communities that we live in. Absolutely. Well, you talked about running around, you know, playing Indian and all the other kind of physical games. And I had the same kind of upbringing. I grew up on a farm and it was the same thing when it when it got dark. I mean, when it was a light, you just fed yourself. And when it got dark, it was probably time to, you know, come home and find some food. Um, but apart from that, were you doing any other kind of formulative athletics or sports? In Texas, it's uh, high school football is massive. So I definitely started playing football the moment that I could. We didn't have peewee leagues or anything like that when, you know, when I was a kid, we played soccer and baseball. But the moment I got to play, you know, I started playing football in seventh grade. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, with full pads and tackle football. Um, that was that was kind of my sport. I, I loved to smash into people and it was fun. And uh, I love the camaraderie of the team sport. And, and um, you know, it was just kind of the closest thing to combat that I could have. Um, and it was, it was always fun to have, live in a town of 3000 people, you know, and on, uh, in high school, you know, at, at the games on Friday night, I mean, you'd have maybe a couple of thousand people at the game, you know, I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing, uh, to see that kind of the whole town, um, you know, would, would rally around, uh, the, the football games. And there were some massive rivalries between some of the local towns that, you know, were, uh, were, were, uh, not too far down the road as well. So, um, it was, uh, just super fun growing up and, and the uh, pressure on you to be out there and perform, you know, with, with people watching and rooting you on and kind of the, the glories of, of victory on that field. And also, you know, the, the tr tragedy of defeat as well too. I think learning how to lose and do that graciously and take ownership of mistakes and implement solutions uh, that, that, you know, playing sports was, uh, was a big part of growing up for me. And, and, uh, and I think that definitely translated to, um, you know, to, to eventually, you know, my time in the SEAL teams for good preparation. Now, were you thinking of the SEAL specifically in the high school age before you entered the military? I, I was always fascinated with the military, you know, and initially I, I loved, um, you know, we, we had, uh, we'd have these low level, like bombing runs come over, like B-52s flying treetop level that would come over our town. Um, we'd have uh, uh, F-4s, you know, that was back in the days of the F-4 Phantoms, you know, this Vietnam air, air aircraft that would fly over. Uh, some of those things were still flying around. So I was kind of, initially I was kind of fascinated with aircraft. Don't tell Dave Burke I said that. <laughs> uh, our, our top gun pilot on our echelon front team. But there's, uh, I, I, I definitely ground combat was something that I always desired to be. And, you know, that's really what we, we, you know, we would, we, you know, when we, when paintball, uh, these paintball guns came out, we, we got those things and started playing with those, you know, in high school. Um, and I, I, from the time I was probably, 
I think I was probably 11 or 12 the first time I heard about the SEAL teams. And um, there was always kind of fascinated with the Navy. I love the Navy. My dad had been in the Merchant Marines um, as a young man and uh, talked about his time on a ship. And, and, and you know, we, we would, we, I grew up on the Texas coast. So um, Woodville is about an hour and a half from the coast, but we'd drive down and spend time down there and go fishing down there. And, you know, we'd fish the Galveston jetties. That's the entry point for the Houston ship channel, which is the, you know, one of the busiest ports in, in North America, um, if not the busiest. And it's, uh, you'd see these ships coming in with all these different flags from all over the world. And, and you just think about the stories, you know, dad would talk about, Hey, check that flag out right there and see where that ship's from, you know, it's from Nigeria or that, 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 that ship's from, you know, Singapore, that ship's from Panama, you know, and or someplace in South America that we, we would, uh, we just talk about that, that it was fascinating to me to think about, you know, the, this idea of, of the ability to travel the world on, on the, on the oceans. Um, I always loved the water. And so when I started learning about the SEAL teams, that was a, there was a real appeal uh, to, to, to that. And I, I read Dick Marcinko's you know book, Road Warrior. I read a, a bunch of books about the, uh, the SEAL teams and started learning about their operation in Vietnam and everything I get there, my, my hands on around that. And, uh, and that's, I, I realized that, that I really, probably by the time I was like 12 or 13, that was solidified. I'm like, I, I wanted to be in the SEAL team. This is what I want to do. And of course, in 1991, this movie, um, you know, with Charlie Sheen, Navy SEALs comes out. And, uh, and so that kind of solidified it. I'm like, okay, that's what I want to do. Uh, we did have a really strong uh, West Point alumni network, uh, you know, from, from the Army side. And one of my grandfathers uh, and grandmother's very close friends uh, was was a was really the ringleader of that was a very successful businessman in Beaumont, Texas, uh, a guy named Ken Ruddy, um, and he was uh, really a mentor to me, a guy I looked up to. I mean, he's a Silver Star recipient from uh, uh, Korea, and uh, just you know, a guy was a combat vet, and, and it was a, was a, uh, a an extraordinary leader that I really looked up to. And so he really was pushing West Point hard and talking about the you know the history of West Point. So when I was in high school, I applied to. I applied to Navy and that was my first choice and I applied to West Point and I heard back from West Point, West Point, uh, I think in like January of my senior year. So we we're going to graduate, you know, in like May or, you know, late May, early June um, uh, from this is 1994 and uh, West Point, you know, in, in January 94, they, uh, they said, Hey, you're accepted. And I went in and accepted my appointment. And then it wasn't until about April. So I'm like, we're right up against graduation at this point, just a few weeks away. And uh, I finally heard back from Navy and they said, okay, they offered me an appointment. And uh, I, I, uh, I was really on the fence. And so when I was talking to Mr. Ruddy about this, you know, he, he, he put the, the pressure on me to go to West Point in a way. He, he said, he said, uh, Leif, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower went to West Point. Jimmy Carter went to Naval Academy. You know, which, which one do you want to be? <laughs> I was like, man, that's a, that's a tough one there. Obviously I'm going to choose Eisenhower all day over, over Carter, but but I was like, you know what? I, I really, I prayed about it. You know, I, I, I was out uh, on a fishing trip, uh, fishing the Galveston jetties, watching those ships, you know, coming in and out of port. And uh, I remember just looking over at my dad and said, dad, I think I'm going to Navy. You know, I think I'm gonna go to Navy. That's what I want to do. I want to be in the SEAL teams. I want to be in the Navy. That's, that's the path I want to follow. So um, I, I decided to turn down that appointment to West Point and go to, to the Naval Academy uh, to pursue that dream. And after four long, hard years in, in the Naval Academy, uh, they took they took 16 guys, actually 15 uh, new uh, graduates from, from Navy to go into the SEAL program because we had a prior enlisted SEAL in my class. Um, so of the 16 billets, there's only 15 guys going uh, that, that were graduating because that, that other guy already had one, having been through BUDS. I was not one of those 15. 
Um, so I went and spent uh, three years on two different service ships. Um, and I had to fight hard just to get a chance to go into the SEAL program, but it's actually the best thing that ever happened to me. So I heard you talking to Jack Carr about this as well, but um, you obviously now you've had this kind of burning desire to become a SEAL. You know, the opportunity comes, the opportunity passes initially. You also grew up, you know, on a, in a, in a country setting. You, you go to the beach. When you look back now, what areas of all those different elements contributed to you not ringing the bell when so many others did in your selection process? Yeah, for me, I mean, it was just, I, it was interesting when I got picked up, you know, the, the, we have a 70 to 80% attrition rate going through our, you know, 26, 27 week long program uh, called BUDS, basically on our demolition seal training. And um, so there's a lot of people in the surface fleet that didn't make it through BUDS. And uh, there were, there were, when I was on my second ship, so I spent two years as a surface warfare officer and destroyer. I got to, rotated to a new uh, ship. This was a frigate. And uh, we, uh, we got got to work with uh, uh, with with the, some some British uh, British uh, sailors uh, on on some ships uh, deployments to the Persian Gulf. Got to, to work with the the Royal Marines on one of my deployments over there too, which is really cool. Um, but uh, I, you know, for me, when I got when I finally got selected to go, this is my third look. So I got passed over to the Naval Academy. I got passed over the first time I put a, a lateral transfer package in. Once I qualified as a service warfare officer and met all the requirements to lateral transfer into the SEAL program, they passed me up. Uh, I did not get selected again. So it was really the, my last and final attempt. Um, and I finally got picked up. I had some amazing um, SEAL, uh, some friends who were in the SEAL teams that really went to bat for me and 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 helped me out and connected me with with uh, with with some uh, some people who pulled some serious strings, you know, for me uh, to get into that program and 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 open some doors in a way. Um, that was awesome. Uh, it, it was it was uh, it was incredible, and um, I, I think uh, that when I got picked up though in in the service fleet. Some of those sailors that had gone to Buds and not made it through, in their mind, Buds was like this thing that was like unachievable. It, it was like not possible to graduate from Buds. And so I remember one of the guys who was a great sailor. He was one of our operations specialists. And he was like, Mr. Babbin, that's awesome. You you got picked up, you know, for uh, for Buds. How long, do you, you know, how, how far do you think you're going to make it through the program? And that was like a serious question. I was like, it was very interesting to me. I was like, all, all the way through the program. Like, man, why would I, why would I even attempt to go? You know, they, that's what I'm thinking in my mind. I was like, I'm going to get all the way through the program, man. That's, that's, uh, that's the goal, you know? And, and I didn't mean that to sound cocky. Obviously it's a very difficult training program, but that's the whole purpose of going is to be in the SEAL program, not to try to make it, you know, seven weeks into BUDS or 12 weeks into BUDS, you know, but to actually graduate from the program and be in the SEAL teams and serve in the SEAL teams. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how James and people make, you know, guys like JP Donnell and Jocko that go straight out of high school, you know, as a 18 or 19 year old, you know, going through that training, I think I would have really struggled, but I went through as a 26 year old. Um, so I was one of the older guys in the class at that time. I had some maturity and, and more than anything, I had a perspective, you know, I had perspective that it was so freaking hard for me just to get a chance to go. You know, that when I, I got to look out at those surface ships off the coast of Coronado, when we're out there suffering, you know, in the surf zone on like day three or you know, night three of hell week. And uh, I just, you know, I just had the perspective of, thank God I'm not out there on one of the ships. I'm right here where I want to be. Um, and this is, you know, thank God I actually have the opportunity to be here and take advantage of that. So that, that was just a perspective that was super powerful for me going through that training. And then uh, even more powerful when I served in the SEAL team, sometimes it's, it's easy to kind of start to, 
just like a lot of fire, firefighters and police and first responders who work with, it's easy to get bitter or angry about the job or frustrated with your chain of command. And there were multiple times uh, throughout the nine years I served in the SEAL teams where I drove over to 32nd Street Naval Station. So, you know, all the SEAL teams on the West Coast are based at, at Naval Amphibious Base uh, Coronado, um, or at least they used to be. Now they've, they've since moved down south. Uh, but there's um, you I would drive across the bridge, go to 32nd Street Naval Station and uh and 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 look back across the bay at naval amphibious base coronado from where i used to be you know all the surface ships are stationed over there at 32nd street naval station and just say hey put that in perspective you know that that i'm where i am now uh take advantage of the opportunities they're given to me do the best that i can you know to influence this organization to uh you know in in every positive aspect that i can and, and appreciate the opportunities that are given to me so um that perspective i think was was very valuable i'm very thankful for it yeah, I can actually relate to that because I didn't become a firefighter until I was 26. Very long story, very short. Medical um, examination as a school kid in England. Was told I was colorblind. They removed all the cool jobs from the table. And that was it. My dreams were shattered. So it took me a long, long time to kind of circle around and challenge that philosophy. Um, and so I'd done some some awesome fun jobs and some absolutely awful jobs. So by the time I got in the fire academy, absolutely, it was the same as you. When the alternative is to go, you know, work in a rubber dinghy factory turning valves, you know, there's nothing that's going to stop you from that. But I think as you kind of underline to have that kind of mindset at 18 is phenomenal. But I would hold my hand up too and say, if I had tried to become a firefighter at 18 years old, I probably would have failed as well. You know, I, I read that in your bio about, uh, about not having pursued that, you know, based on that, that colorblind uh, designation. I thought that was interesting, James, because it was... Uh, Actually, I have one of my really close friends from the Naval Academy um, was uh, he he was uh, he basically wasn't allowed to serve in in in, um, in a you know the combat arms equivalent is what we would call it, you know in in the uh, the Navy right so he couldn't be a service warfare officer he couldn't be a pilot he couldn't be a SEAL um, so he went the supply route. Uh, and, uh, cause he was colorblind and he was an awesome supply officer. Um, and, uh, I served very closely with him on a, on our, we flew out to our first service ship together. So we went all the way through the Naval Academy together. And then we flew out. Um, I'd gone to service warfare officer school. He went to supply school. We flew out and served on that ship together for two years. It was awesome. Uh, we were roommates for a while. He came back to support us at, uh, in, in, in uh, Naval special warfare, the SEAL teams as the, uh, a supply officer for the uh, the training center uh, where Buds is. So it was awesome. He, he was a great guy, um, but it certainly didn't stop him from doing all that he could to, you know, to serve and, and uh, support everybody. And he was a, you know, he was standing watch on the bridge with us on the service ships, just like everybody. So it's pretty awesome. Brilliant. Yeah. I, my advice is to never trust someone to say got a white coat and a stethoscope. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> well, clearly you overcame that. Yeah. <laughs> And pursue your dreams regardless, which is awesome. It took me a long time to figure it out, though. Way longer than it should have, but that's another story. Well, obviously, you know, I, I was at the um, the muster in Orlando, which I would love, we're going to get to in a minute because I thought that post-COVID was such a powerful moment for us all to, to be there together. But, you know, yourself and Jocko, and especially in extreme ownership, you talk a lot about Ramadi. This question may include that or it may be prior to that, but something I love to ask anyone who's been deployed, and the reason for this question is most of us civilians, especially in the US, really get a very polarizing view of war, of combat. It's either absolutely pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or it's very anti-war, they're all baby killers. And so hearing the voices of the men and women on the ground, I think is imperative for anyone who who is enjoying the freedom that other people are fighting for. So from you know when you finally made it through um 
all the SEAL training and you were deployed, was there a moment, regardless of the politics that sent you there, that you realized that there were some horrific individuals that needed to be taken care of? I mean, before I even deployed there, for sure. I mean, just reading about what was going on. Um, you know, and look, I think that uh, I have, you know, you, you could you could have all kinds of criticisms about the strategy of, of the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan, and, and, and I certainly do. Um, but uh, I, I it, it was very clear, right, that uh, from the moment that I deployed to, to Iraq, I mean, there was... Saddam Hussein and his regime were some of the most evil people around. You know, when you read about what they were doing to people uh, and how they ran things, uh, I mean, you're talking about just barbaric stuff that that would, you know, we don't really think about um, as Americans. It's hard. I kind of wrap our minds around that, you know, but we heard some of the stories. There was some uh, there was some big animal cages. Uh, we stayed in a palace that had belonged to Uday and Kusei. Uh, uh, Hussein, uh, that were Saddam's sons. And I mean, these are people that would just, you know, the, the stories that we heard about them were just incredible. Right? We're talking like showing up and just stealing people's brides on their wedding. This is like straight out of the Braveheart script, you know, uh, from the, from the, the Braveheart movie um, and just taking somebody's, you know, taking away someone's bride and having their way with them. Um, but, but the, 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 the interesting stories, you know, even worse than that, Apparently they had lions and tigers in these cages at one time. Uh, and they literally were like a 200 yards from where we were, we were staying in these, uh, in this kind of blown out palace. It had this, there was a JDM that had gone right down through the center of the, of the building. It was probably like a, you know, um, I don't know, a 30 yard diameter hole that went through like four stories of the building um, and through like the main, main effort. And so we were kind of staying in this little wing that we try to fix up, you know, it just patched up the holes. But these, these, there were lion and tiger cages that they literally would feed people to, um, you know, their, their enemies. So, I mean, it, it's just horrific stuff. And, and uh, it, it's just a different, you know, view of, of the world, um, you know, and of course, then as the insurgency started taking off, um, you know, and I got to, 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 to witness that, you know, and people that were one of the most horrible things I would see, James, was how, you know, we uh, the some of the big attacks we were staying on base in the green zone uh my, my first appointment there um and we were guarding the top five uh iraqi government officials we were we were security detail it was not the mission that we wanted it was not a fun mission at all but they would hit the green zone i mean probably a couple of times a week uh with a giant you know truck bomb vbid you know vehicle borne improvised explosive device so somebody driving a huge truck full of thousands of pounds of explosives and just I, I remember that thing just, you know, they'd hit a checkpoint, it would, you know, um, maybe it wasn't a couple of times a week, but it was, it was frequently. I remember a number of times where uh, they, they set these explosions off um, and, and I, and we were driving in and out of that gate. And there was a 12 foot deep crater in the middle of the street that was probably, you know, 20 yards in diameter from one of those bombs that had gone off. And, um, you know, I just, you felt like the building was going to come down around you, even though we were several hundred yards away from the explosion, you know, mortars constantly hitting and, and, and rocketing. And one of the worst things about that was, you know, a lot of these suicide bombers uh, were people that would just be talked into, you know, we, we, we saw one later in Ramadi on one of my, uh, my following deployments, 
is a special needs kid, you know, special needs kid that they would talk into like, Hey, your life is worthless. You know, the only way that you're going to actually achieve, you know, the, the afterlife and do something good is to drive this, you know, this, this, uh, this truck over there. And sometimes they wouldn't even tell these kids what they were going to do. You're talking like a young man, teenager. They're not even going to tell them what they're doing. Uh, they're going to tell them just, Hey, take this and drive it to the checkpoint. And then someone's going to set that thing off remotely and they don't even know what's coming. I mean, that's, you're just talking about just sadistic and evil, you know, people that are going to try to just prey on, on the mercies of, you know, they, they might send an elderly, elderly man to drive a vehicle, you know, because they know that hey, maybe, maybe he can get closer to that, that, uh, that, uh, convoy. So that, that U S army soldier man, in the 50 cal machine guns going to hesitate before, you know, engages that guy. I mean, just, just that kind of stuff, you know? And then when we got to Ramadi in 2006, it was just, I mean, just the kind of things that they would do to people to, to make an example out of them. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the organization we were fighting at the time, they called themselves Al-Qaeda in Iraq and very quickly realized they would need to rebrand them, themselves because Al-Qaeda was a foreign organization. And when they had foreigners like, like, uh, you know, uh, like uh, uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was, uh, al-Zarqawi was a, um, I was a Jordanian um, and they had some Egyptians and, you know, other uh, others that had come from other parts uh, of the globe. The Afghanis didn't want to live under this brutal reign of fear and terror. So they would uh, they would, you know, they they rebranded Al Qaeda in Iraq, rebranded themselves as uh, they called themselves the Islamic uh, State, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq or ISI. And then, of course, that became ISIS um, as, as that expanded uh, a few years later. So it was just a precursor uh, organization to ISIS, but they're doing all the same things that you saw, you know, back in 2013, 14, 15, when they're just murdering people, savagely, you know, mutilating them, making examples out of people and just ruling through, you know, torture, rape, murder, fear, and intimidation. And, uh, I mean, there was no question that we were on the side of right, um, uh, versus, uh, trying to rid, you know, the, the, these, these, the, particularly like in, in Ramadi, the local people who were initially terrified of us, they, it, the moment that they realized that like, Hey, this is that the, they were, they were terrified of us, not because they, they were, uh, they thought that we were going to harm them, but because they, they feared what the insurgents were going to do to the, to them, those, those Al Qaeda in Iraq or, you know, uh, Islamic state of Iraq fighters, um, they knew what they were going to do to them if they thought they were helping us in any way. So the moment that, that, we proved that we were there to help them and that we started to build relationships with them. I mean, they're saying, Hey, we'll tell you exactly where these people are. We want them out of our neighborhood. Here's where the bombs are planted, you know, in, in this intersection. Uh, and we saw, we saw the local people who they, they welcomed our support uh, in, in pushing, you know, this scourge of, uh, of insurgents uh, and terrorists out. So um, very interesting. And I think a lot of Americans don't fully understand that or really get that. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, but that's the reality that we were dealing with on the ground. Well, I think that's why it's so important to hear all of these perspectives. One of my guests recently, I think it was Raul, if I got that right, um, was pointing out that, you know, when, when they were deploying, you know, and some of the, as you point out, some of these kids are 18, 19 years old. There's these videos of, you know, servicemen being captured and decapitated and burned and dragged through the towns. And, you know, this is the risk that our servicemen and women are taking. And, you know, this is the age that we're sending them off. And these are some of the horrific things they're seeing. So firstly, we need to be extremely careful when we, you know, poke a bear and, and choose to send our men and women overseas. And secondly, we sure as hell need to make sure that we give them the kind of transition that will allow them to go from that absolute nightmare back into, you know, their local town that they came from when they were young. I think it was 2014 where ISIS was moving back in 
excuse me, they'd taken over the, uh, you know, they'd, they'd taken over the city of Mosul up north. And uh, excuse me, they, they, uh, so ISIS was moving back in, they're taking over the city of Mosul up north, and they were moving back in to really take over Ambar province. They kind of solidified their hold on Fallujah, and they were moving into to the city of Ramadi that was kind of the last holdout in Anbar. And uh, I think it was Vice, or there, there was a number of articles that I saw, um, but the, the few kind of U.S. reporters that were on the ground there were talking to some people, and, the, and people were screaming for U.S. forces to come help them. And... I had a good friend uh, of mine uh, who I had put through training years ago and and uh, I served with the same SEAL team with, and he was still serving on active duty. And uh, he had said they, they'd had a meeting with some of the tribal elders in Ramadi, and they were saying, they were saying, send the old guys back here. And they were trying to figure out who they were talking about. And they were talking about tasking a bruiser. They were talking about the, the you know, SEALs that had uh that had actually gone out there and done some damage and the soldiers and Marines actually that had, had, uh, had led that fight in 2006. That's who they wanted there. So it's, it's, uh, you know, sadly America just abandoned them. Uh, and, uh, we let that town get overrun, you know, and, uh, ISIS went door to door with a list of about 500 names of people. Um, and anybody that was left or associated with those folks got horribly tortured and murdered, uh, and made an example out of. So, you know, that's, that's the, the, the reality um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't think that had to happen. I think that was, uh, that was something that, uh, we could have prevented, uh, you know, from happening. Um, and of course, eventually the city was taken back, but it, it was, um, you know, it, it was decimated. It went from a city of 400,000 people to about a hundred thousand people, uh, for a while. And I, I don't know where that stands right now, you know, but it's, uh, when, when they were asking for help and when they're asking what they needed, they, they actually wanted kinetic U.S. forces there to defend them, you know, from uh, these these ISIS insurgents. Well, speaking of, of that whole philosophy as well with the, with the people, I think one of the other mis- messages that were kind of sent through mainstream media was we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan, where the reality is there was some horrendous extremists in those countries that are terrorizing the men, women and children that live there. So what about moments of kindness and compassion, whether it was, you know, the, the men and women that you served with or the, the, the people that you served for, you know, the, the, the people in the countries, were there moments amidst this chaos, this, these combat zones where you witness kindness and compassion? Every day, every single day, every single operation. You know, I mean, this is uh, Mark Lee was the first SEAL killed in the Iraq war. He was a member of Charlie Platoon, my platoon. I was his platoon commander. Uh, unbelievably, you know, just talented, extraordinary guy, you know, and he was particularly, um, he looked like an Iraqi uh, in, in his, you know, he has a kind of dark complexion. He had some uh, Hispanic heritage. And and so he grew out his mustache. And so some of the Iraqi soldiers would try to speak Arabic to him and he kind of nod along and then start laughing and saying, hey, I don't understand what you're talking about. But he'd go up and engage people and, uh, you know, in, in conversation through the interpreters and, and talk to them. He always handed out Kim lights and, uh, you know, things like that to the kids. And, um, and there were a number of guys in the platoon that did that as well. Um, and we'd have conversations with people and let them know like, Hey, we're, we're here to help you. We, we want to help you. And initially, like I said, they were terrified of us. They didn't want to talk to us, but once they realized that, Hey, we're here to stay. Cause they thought we were just going to show up and then leave, which is what American forces had been doing for three years, you know, prior to those, uh, uh, efforts to push in there and, and establish permanent U.S. bases inside the city of Ramadi in, in 2006, the, the seize clear whole bill strategy of the ready first brigade combat team of the first armor division. Um, and, you know, that we were just proud and honored to support, you know, the, the thousands of soldiers and Marines that, that led that fight there. Um, but we would go into these areas and we would constantly enter building. I mean, I, Jock and I were just talking about this the other day. 
I, he was like, how many buildings do you think you entered in Ramadi? I was like, man, I have no idea. <laughs> hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of buildings. And most of those buildings are occupied with people. So we're talking to the families and we're talking to the kids and we're talking, you know, we're just, we're engaging with them and talking to them. And, you know, I, I can remember one time in particular, we were chasing, um, we, it was a capture kill raid. So we're going after a bad guy that we knew he was in a specific location, uh, a very specific location. And, uh, and so there's a, there's an AC 130 inspector gunship overhead, you know, that's, that's telling us that the, he jumped, we, we had a guy, who, you know, he jumped off the roof to another roof to another roof. And so we're chasing him and we chased him several buildings down the way. And of course, now we think, hey, this is a bad guy. We, we expect him to be armed. We expect him to be ready for us. So we use an explosive breaching charge on the door. Uh, we blast the door in, which blows out the windows in the front of the building. Uh, and we go in there and there is, um, you know, we see uh, we see a man and a woman and a bunch of kids and and uh, uh, and, and a couple other men. And, uh, and so there's, uh, I, I really don't know who's who, you know, but we had Iraqi soldiers and interpreters that could, they could figure out right away that like, Hey, this person's not with them. And, and the, the father of the family stood up and was like, Hey, that guy is not, you know, part of our family. He just came, came to the door. Um, you know, he's not with us. He's a bad guy. You know, they call them, they call them, uh, ear hobby, which is, is a terrorist. And, uh, this is, this is, uh, um, and I don't speak Arabic, but I, I knew enough of that to understand what, what he was saying. Um, and, uh, and so he was telling us, and, you know, so we, I, I feel terrible that now we've, we have this innocent family that's trying to get rid of these bad guys in their neighborhoods. We just blasted their door in and blew all their windows out. So I'm, I'm giving them some, some, some funds and, and some money and saying, Hey, we're going to send a civil affairs team out here to, you know, to, to help rebuild your door and, and fix these windows and, and, uh, and take, what else can we do for you? And he said, listen, you guys are doing enough. I don't need any of that stuff. I need these bad guys out of my neighborhood so that my family can live in peace. Um, we, we just had that kind of stuff all the time. I and mean, this is a guy who literally, I mean, there's, you don't want seals blowing your door in, right? This is not, uh, it's not going to be fun for you. A big explosive charge on the door, blasting the windows in. And you got some rough men with weapons clearing the, clearing the building, expecting that there's potentially armed guys are going to shoot back at us in, in that building. And look, we don't, you know, we separate the, 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 the women and the children. And, 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 you know, I'm not saying that we use excessive force or anything like that, but it's just not a fun experience, right. To, to go through that. And yet this guy is saying, Hey, I totally understand why you did that. And, and I, I totally get why you had to do that. We are just appreciative of you for what you're doing to get these people out of our neighborhood. So my family can, can live in peace. And, um, and I thought that was, you know, that's just one example of hundreds that we could give you, you know, uh, of uh, there was, there was, um, you know, constantly interaction between local people. Um, and that's something that Jocko emphasized when he realized, you know, I, he was, Jocko was the first person, you know, as my task and a commander, he was the first person that I knew who had read a draft of the new counterinsurgency manual uh, that came out. And he helped us understand that, like, look, our job here is, you know, if you ask SEALs, like, hey, what's our, what's our mission? We would say, kill bad guys, kill bad guys. That's, that's generally what you, you would hear SEALs say. And, and Jocko helped us understand that that actually wasn't our mission. Our mission was to, was to secure Ramadi, you know, stabilize, uh, uh, secure the populace, stabilize Ramadi and lower level of violence. And so to do that, we got to build relationships with the local people. Sure. We're going to have to kill some bad guys. And that was a big part of what, what we did, um, you know, to, uh, to, to help rid that city of some bad guys, protect the local people, protect the soldiers and Marines that were out there, you know, building combat outposts and living and working uh, and patrolling through the city with Iraqi uh, soldiers. But, uh, but our job was, was, was really to uh, stabilize and secure the city and, and local populace uh, and lower level of violence. And that's something, you know, it required us to build relationships. 
And, and uh, we did a ton of that. That was a big piece of what we did. Every single mission we're carrying, you know, I, I would, I would carry uh, a couple thousand dollars in, you, you know, us uh, currency that I could actually give out. Um, you know, I might give $500 here or a thousand dollars there to, uh, you know, to, to uh, someone like that, to help repair damage that had been done, you know, as a result of that and, and try to try to offer them some solace for, um, you know, a door that we blew in or a car that we damaged or, you know, something, something like that. So, uh, always trying to engage with the locals in, in everything we did there. Yeah, and again, that's just the the perspective you just don't hear. You know, we don't get that. We're talking about you know cowboys and Indians and history being more complex, and it's the same thing. I think the message that you've got back home has been either very pro or very anti, and then obviously the the middle ground is very nuanced. And each each group and each uh, mission, you know, is varied. And we have some people that committed atrocities in uniform, and we had the other absolute vast majority that risked their lives left their families and went to try and help these people in the foreign land i think it's so important that we hear that no doubt you know look I, i'm not saying people you know u.s military is, is perfect right we're a reflection of society and there's amazing people that serve in uniform and there's some not so good people that serve in uniform you know i think as a leader uh oftentimes too you know there's uh um I think, you know, look, as a Christian, yeah, just I, I just accept the fact that every single one of us is capable of, of great good and great evil. Every single one of us. Um, I, I think there's a lot of modern Americans that maybe don't accept that or don't want to think that that's possible. Uh, but it's certainly true. And, you know, I, I feel like uh, as as a leader, you know, one of the things that that we took very seriously to asking a bruiser was like, look, there's there's black and white and uh, and and there is you know something that Jocko used to say to us all the time was you can't you know because on the battlefield sometimes what you think is right is kind of hard to determine you know and I learned that in the Naval Academy it's it's uh, they would say things like do the right thing because it's the right thing to do you know that that's 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 what they told us as far as like having integrity well when you're talking about an ISIS you know fighter who butchers and murders and rapes and tortures people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, then doing the right thing. Uh, it becomes, is, is a little bit gray, right? When you're on the battlefield. So what Jocko would say is, look, you, you got to not only do, you have to not only do what you think is right. You have to do what is legal. So we have to do what we think is right and what is legal so that we're going to follow the rules of engagement to a T. We're, you know, if, if, if somebody engages someone, we thought it was an IED layer in the road and it doesn't turn out to be an IED layer, guess what we're going to do? We're going to actually report that up the chain of command. We're going to invite an investigation, uh, you know, to, to, uh, uh, you know, to come down and interview people and understand uh, why that, that shot was taken in accordance with rules of engagement. Um, and that's something that, that we actually have to be, be good with and welcome. And, and, and we did that. Uh, and so we held the line on those things. But I think as a leader on the battlefield, you, you know, you have to realize that, uh, you know, one of my job was to, you know, not only make sure that the guys are following the rules of engagement and holding the line on things, but but not doing things that they're going to deeply regret later, you know, down the road uh, or, or something that could, could, could get them in trouble, um, even if they didn't mean it to be that way. You know, so I think staying that detachment from emotions is, is super important for leaders. Um, on the battlefield uh, to to do what is not only right but 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 what is legal um, and to follow that, that to a T and that was just that was black and white attacking a bruiser uh, all day long. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to kind of you know post um, service as it were. The topic of transition is always 
interesting because as you said, I mean, just some of the things that you had to do, had to see um, during your deployment, and now you're going to come back and transition to the civilian world. An area that I see a lot of people struggle with, whether it's military, police, fire, is, you know, you identified as, a lot of people identify as, you know, a SEAL, a firefighter. When you transition out, you kind of, in a way, lose your identity unless you really kind of come to terms with the fact that you were a person in a uniform. You had that tribe, you had that, you know, that brotherhood that you were serving with, you had that mission, that sense of purpose. And then for some people, they transition out and it's kind of jarring and that can even be you know challenging from the mental health perspective what made you decide to transition out and what was your transition your initial transition like for you personally yeah transitioning out of the military was tough i mean it, it, it was a, a real challenge and um it was because i'd never wanted to do anything else you know i mean the seal teams is the best job in the world i had the absolute best job in the world um, and so to, to leave that job is, is hard. Uh, it was very hard. You know, I, I got, as, as I got promoted up the ranks as an officer, you know, you very quickly, um, you, 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 when you leave the, a serving in a SEAL platoon, um, and because I got promoted, you know, I got, I got selected, um, uh, as, as, as for, for the executive officer, uh, uh level, which meant that, I kind of got passed over for Jocko's job as my task and commander. I didn't get a chance to do that. So I went from a platoon commander teaching, you know, leadership for a couple of years. And then I, I jumped into an operations officer and then executive officer role. So then I'm, you know, it's, it's a senior kind of a senior executive role. And, um, and so it's, it's, there's a lot of administrative, you know, requirements there. You just move further away from the things you like to do and the people that you like to be around. Um, and so I always said that I was going to, People would ask me, hey, you're going to be in for 20 years. You're going to do this for a career. And I said, I'm going to do this till I stop having fun. Uh, that, that, that was my, my answer. Um, and look, it's a, it's a people, we, we need operations and executive officers and commanding officers and, you know, and, and, and commodores, um, you know, and admirals. I mean, you got to have people serving in those positions. And thank God there's some good people uh, that, that have stayed in to serve in those positions. Um, but I can tell you, you know, from my perspective, there were two things that really pushed me out, James. Um, you know, one, number one was family. Uh, my wife and I, um, my, my now wife, we weren't married at the time in the SEAL teams. We got engaged while I was still serving on, on active duty. She was, her job kept her in New York City. Uh, she worked at Fox News at the time and as a journalist. And so, uh, which was kind of the ultimate irony because um, I, I learned to really hate and despise journalists uh, on the ground in, in Iraq, um, particularly with some of those camera crews that were out there just trying to like gather, you know, intel on us or, or leave, a, leave a camera rolling in, in a tackle operations center after they were asked to leave because we were discussing some classified information so they, so they could somehow try to catch something that you said and try to burn you in some way. Um, so I did not come back uh, from, from Iraq uh, deployment with, with a very positive view of journalism, uh, of journalists. And uh, so it was the ultimate hour that I started dating one and she's amazing. And, and uh, I, I love, love my wife uh, to death. It's the greatest thing that, that's ever happened to me. The greatest gift that God's ever given me, certainly. Um, but uh, it, it is, we, we were on opposite coast. I was stationed in San Diego. She was in New York city, you know, and it was a six hour plane ride. We got to see each other about once a month, you know, a best case scenario uh, at the time. And uh, the closest I was going to be able to get to station, you know, station near her was at the Pentagon, which is, you know, a two and a half hour train ride south. And uh, I had zero desire to be at the Pentagon. 
uh, you know, and build PowerPoint presentations for senior officers and, you know, be a staffer. So that wasn't what appealed to me. That was, that was the first thing, right. Of trying to just live in the same city as we get married. You know, I wanted, we were going to get married and, and I wanted to be in the same, you know, co-located with my wife um, after being two and a half years on the opposite side of the country. The second thing was our employment in the SEAL teams. And so, you know, the war in Iraq had really kind of wound down by, you know, uh, 2009, 2010, uh, my last deployment to Iraq that I was there. Just to put that in perspective, I went back to Ramadi uh, three years after the big battles of 2006. And uh, the brigade combat teams we served with, the 2nd Brigade 28th um, uh, Infantry Division, which was a National Guard unit in Pennsylvania, I believe they had 94 guys killed in action, about 500 or so wounded in their uh, in their 15 months uh, in Iraq. And then they turned over with the Ready First Brigade Combat Team of the First Armored Division, um, and you know of their 5,600 troops. And we served really closely with those guys and did some great work with them. Um, they had 98 U.S. troops killed in action and about 500 or so wounded. Um, throughout their, their 15 months uh, in Iraq. And this is just in this, you know, the small city of Ramadi and the surrounding area that they were in charge of. So really an area just, you know, um, uh, the, the city of Ramadi and a few miles outside of that, 98 guys killed in action, 500 wounded. So we go, uh, we go back to Ramadi in 2009. I get there September, 2009, stayed there through March of uh, 2010. There was one U.S. soldier killed in a vehicle rollover accident, all of Anbar province wide. So now you're talking about the biggest province in all of Iraq, all of Western Iraq, not just the city of Ramadi, but from, I mean, from just west of Baghdad all the way to the, you know, the, the Syrian and, and Saudi borders. Um, and uh, one U.S. soldier killed in all of Anbar province in a non, non-combat fatality. Um, and I mean, that's that's the difference that was made there. Um, unbelievable turnaround of events. And uh, it was uh, it was wild to see that. It was almost, I, I didn't almost believe it. When I flew back, I flew over the city in a helicopter in the daytime at about 200 feet. And, and I mean, the hair on the back of my neck was standing <laughs> up, let me tell you, because if you did that in 2006, the chance of you getting shot down were damn near 100%. Um, and uh, it, it was... Uh, so the first time I did that, I was like, man, this is a different place. This is a different place. And the, the biggest change was, you know, we had, uh, we had, we had, we had school kids running up to the Humvees and like flashing peace signs. Uh, and we're like, Hey, slow the Humvees down. Don't hit the school kids. That's what we were worried about. You know, on the same roads where, you know, seven to 10 IEDs were going off a day, every single day on, on route Michigan, the main road through the city, um, every single day on average, seven to 10 IEDs a day. Um, you know, killing and wounded U.S. troops. Uh, so th- this is, you know, it was a massive turnaround that took place. And I'd witnessed that. I got to see it. And at the same time, you know, uh, at, at that time, you know, 2009-10 in Afghanistan, there were some massive battles going on to take back, um, you know, in, in Helmand province and Kandahar province, to take back some of these traditional Taliban held areas. Marines were pushing into those areas. And so I got to witness, you know, uh, uh, you know, a friends of mine that were rehabbing up at, at um at uh, um, Balboa Naval Hospital, you know, these Marines were coming back with no legs and no arms. And I was talking to these guys and, and, and we're saying, look, we could help, we could help the Marine push into Marja. We can help the Marine push, you know, in Helmand province and Kandahar province. We could put snipers out on the high ground, on the ridge lines instead of buildings like we did in Ramadi. It's not urban, it's, it's rural, but we can, we can put more guys out there. And we just done that with the whole SEAL task unit from SEAL Team 7 that we, uh, and I've been at SEAL Team 1. So they, they, these guys had done a ton of that stuff, supporting the Army and Marines going into some of these areas. 
And I was being told there's no demand signal for more SEALs in Afghanistan. There's no demand signal. There was some massive restrictions on troop numbers there. Um, you know, President Obama had, had, had approved the surge to Afghanistan, but there was a limit on, on uh, combat troops there. And so we were being told no, no demand signal, no demand signal. I was like, man, ask, ask that Marine with no legs at Balboa if he wished he had some SEAL snipers up on the, on the rooftop of the, the building supporting him, you know, uh, taking out some ID layers in the road or, or up on the ridgeline, you know, supporting him as, as, as he patrolling through, you know, these, these horrible areas. So that was a really tough thing for me. And um, it was part of the reason why I finally felt like, you know what, I did everything I could to try to influence uh, the SEAL teams to get more guys in, into the fight. It was just way, way above my pay grade, you know, to be able to do that. And uh, I felt like it was my time to go. Uh, my time to leave. And so as I left and as I transitioned out, you know, then it was, okay, now what do I do? I'm leaving the best job in the world. The only job I've ever wanted to do. Um, I'm moving to, I'm, I'm a country boy from rural East Texas who lived in San Diego for 12 years and surfed about every day. Um, and, uh, and, and, and now I'm moving to New York city, uh, which where I lived for six years, uh, and look, that, I met some extraordinary people who opened incredible doors for us. I don't think that Jock and I would have written extreme ownership and, um, and, and been able to launch that to the world in a way that, that we, we, we did if we didn't have the help and support of some amazing people, um, you know, like Roger Ailes at Fox News and Don Imus, you know, with, with Imus in the Morning Program um, and, and so many great folks like that, you know, that, that helped us uh, to spread the message of the world about what we're doing. So, you know, that, that I'm, I'm thankful for those opportunities. But as I transitioned out in, in 2011, I was going to go to school. That was, that's what everybody does. Everybody goes to school. A lot of people go get an MBA if they already have a college degree. I decided I was going to go get a law degree. And I had some people that helped me pull some strings to get me into law school. I was accepted at Fordham Law School. Um, and I was doing a, it was like a two or three week, like academic enrichment program for guys like me that didn't make great grades in college and had been out of school for a long time. And um, while I was serving in that, uh, I got a call from a really good friend of mine that was still serving. And he told me that one of my close friends that had just been at my wedding about a month before that was killed on extortion 17, which is a helicopter that got shot down in Afghanistan. August, this is August 6, 2011. It was the largest single loss of life in the history of the SEAL teams uh, and, and the, the, the largest single loss of life for any incident um, in, the, in the entire 20-year Afghan conflict. So a uh, horrible loss of life there. I, I knew six of those guys that were on the, uh, the helicopter uh, and, and some of them were close friends and, and uh, just, just a real wake up call, you know, that uh, a lesson that I'd already learned multiple times throughout my Navy career and the loss of friends that life is short and, and people, you know, had asked me, Hey, do you want to go to law school? I had a good friend who was a business leader in New York. He's like, Hey, do you want to be a lawyer? I was like, no. It's like, well, why are, you, why are you going to law school? It's three years of your life. And so I realized that's not the pathway for me. Um, I talked to some people that had gone to law school that said, you know what, if I do it all over again, I'd go to law school. And instead of being a lawyer, I would launch a business. And so I thought, Hey, what the hell I'll launch a business. And, and, uh, and, but as I was talking to Jenna, I was talking to my wife, Jenna, we were having some margaritas at a place called Blockheads right there in like midtown Manhattan. And, and my life was really upended because I was like, okay, I'm not going to school. Now what I want to do. And uh, Jenna is a, an excellent interviewer as a journalist. And she said, you know what, what are you passionate about? What, what really drives you? Um, and she's like, what do you like to do? And, and as she's asking these questions, my answer, number one is 
I love being a combat leader. Being a SEAL platoon commander was the greatest job in the entire world. I would do that uh, forever if I could. Um, and yet I can't do that. I got promoted out of that job. I got, you know, I'm, I'm, that job is behind me now. Uh, that job is passed. But the second thing that I love to do most was really surprising to me as I thought about it, James, and it was uh, teach leadership. And I taught for two years, every single SEAL officer that graduated from our training pipeline. I tried to pass on, I had a five-week course. I had four weeks of classroom, a week-long field training exercise to try to pass on every single lesson I wish they'd taught me, you know, before I went in, in, into a tough combat position. And I love that. I love seeing those young guys succeed and learn those lessons and then go out onto different battlefields like places in Afghanistan and, and other places in the world and implement the, the, the leadership uh, skills that we taught them and to come back and say, you know, tell them how, you know, tell me how appreciative they were of that and how that was able to help them through, you know, some challenges and, and the good they were able to actually do and the lives they were able to save and the impact they were able to have. And I loved every second of that. So it was a surprising thing to me. It was not something I had really desired to do or wanted to do. Uh, but the SEAL team saw fit to put me there uh, in that that leadership instructor role, and uh, and I loved it. And uh, and so that's what we do now. And, and Jenna, after having that conversation, sitting there over some margaritas, is like call Jocko, launch a company. Uh, and, and so we that, that's really kind of how Echelon Front was born. Um, you know, and uh, that was that was August of uh, 2011. And I thought Echelon Front was my idea, James, for a long time. And uh, probably a year and a half, two years later, I realized. That like in Jocko's way, always thinking strategically, always planting seeds. Um, he had had a conversation with me in in probably September uh, 2010 before he retired. Um, the next month, he was cleaning out his locker. I was up there talking to him in his office at training detachment where he'd been for three years running, you know, all training for the West Coast SEAL team. It's probably the greatest leadership laboratory of all time. Um, seeing all these different leaders go through this crazy training and to see, you know, different humans react in different ways and really uh, see what works and what doesn't work um, by these, you know, different people going through these same scenarios. And he had just said, hey, what would it take you to, uh, you know, to come on board and launch a, uh, a leadership, leadership consulting company? And I threw out some number that I thought was just gargantuan at the time. It seems pretty small now, <laughs> but uh, he just, he didn't even say anything. He just said, hmm. He, that, that, that was his response. And that was the end of the conversation. And so I realized that uh, a year prior to that, you know, he'd actually planted that seed in my head. And um, and it, there I was thinking that Echelon Front was my idea. But uh, that was how Echelon Front was born. And I think, you know, if anything, the transition for me that's been successful, James, is it, it's finding a new mission, you know, finding the new mission. And that mission for me is to pass on the leadership lessons that we learn on the battlefield to every leader uh, in every situation, try to as far and wide as we possibly can to, 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 so that we can help people solve their problems through leadership and not just the business problems, you know, not just people in the corporate world, but, but first responders and people on the home front in their marriages and, and, and with their kids and in their communities um, and in the you know, education space and the nonprofit space, we work with so many people in, in just all kinds of walks of life across every spectrum of industries that's really our mission now. We get to talk about the, the lessons that we learned, um, the humbling lessons that we learned, the mistakes that we made, what we learned from those mistakes. We get to honor the fallen seals, the heroes like Mark Lee and Ryan Job and Mike Monsoor and the you know the, 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 the who gave their lives on the battlefield, and 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 you know amazing guys like uh, Chris Kyle and Seth Stone and others who have uh, who've gone on since. Um, and and uh, are no longer with us, but to talk about their legacies, talk about what they did and the impact that they had. 
So that's been a huge thing for me. And I think, you know, if anything, what we always tell people transition out of the military is you got to find that new mission. That that's, that's what you have to do. You have to find that new mission. And, and for me, you know, as you can tell, like this isn't work. It, it's it's a passion that I have. I can talk to leaders all day long about solving their problems, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a dad talking about why his 13 year old son won't listen to him and, you know, how he wants to steer him on the path and the best means to do that. Or somebody talking about how, you know, they're having some frictions on the home front. And, uh, and, and I've got to really, you know, help them understand how extreme ownership applies, you know, to, to uh, in, in relation to, to their relationship with their spouse. Um, you know, to a leader who's trying to lead a team of people, um, whether it's up the chain of command on the front lines or whether it's a mid-level manager or whether it's a senior leader in charge of hundreds or even thousands of people at, uh, you know, at, at a major corporation, um, leading that team and creating opportunities and being more successful in what they're trying to do. It's, it's just an awesome thing. It's not work to us. It's fun. And I think when you can find a new mission that you can really get behind um, and believe in, uh, I think that's the best path for transition. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think it was Jamie posted that it's seven years ago that you launched the book. Is that right? It was. Yeah, it was in uh, it was it was in uh, 2015, October 2015. So we just passed the um, the seven year anniversary of the book coming out. So what was interesting, listening to you and Jack talk, Jack Carr, um, was I just had this exact same experience that you talked about where I wrote a book, I self-published initially, and then I'm, I'm writing a second one. So I'm like, okay, well, let me see if I can get a publisher now because I want to make sure that, you know, the first one gets the audience that I feel it uh, not deserves. So I, I want to get that book to as many people as possible, regardless of finances. And then obviously it would be a great way of setting up the second one. But I've only really had a couple of interactions so far, but it's kind of the same thing that you talked about. Oh, you know, this is this is a real story from the seal teams with leadership or my my book you know the kind of mental and physical wellness through a firefighter's eyes yeah that's not really popular at the moment you know have you got one that you know about a firefighter that that strips and you know makes you know housewives all horny or <laughs> so so talk to me about that because i think people probably make the assumption that you guys came out of the seal teams and immediately wrote a book and then it was a bestseller just you know for all the potential authors and anyone else who's trying to you know begin the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial path what were some of the the stumbling blocks that you had as you kind of entered this space? No doubt. I mean, there's uh, well, the biggest stumbling block number one is it was kind of frowned upon to write books, you know, in the SEAL teams. Um, and Jocko and I never anticipated being the guys that were going to write books, and um, and uh, and yet, you know, we realized that like we actually we, there, there was a there was a real demand segment for this book, and there was a need for this book, um, and. Uh, but but we didn't realize that until it was a good you know two years into echelon front and and where extreme ownership was born was a reference manual you know as we'd come in and work with a team of you know 10 12 15 leaders you know uh, and run them through a workshop or you know uh maybe we'd come back and do that again you know six months down the road they would always you know ask us for some kind of reference material that they could have and they wanted something more than just powerpoint slides you know with a few bullets like hey what can we do to really, really review this stuff and reference it. So we started building, you know, a little workbook um, that would go along with this stuff. And that workbook, you know, it started out, it was 20 or 30 pages, then it becomes a hundred pages, then it becomes 180 pages. You know, it starts getting pretty, pretty extensive. And, and, you know, we realized like, look, we, we owe it to the world, I think, to take the lessons that we passed on or that we learned and pass them on. We owe it to the world to take the lessons that, that we learned and pass them on to, to others uh, so that they can learn these same lessons and implement them in their world and solve problems with leadership. So um, that's kind of where it came from. And, and 
you know, I think everybody thinks that, you know, oh, well, you guys had a great story. And uh, obviously, you know, Extreme Ownership has sold more than 3 million copies now. It it must have been super easy to just get a book deal, you know, and every SEAL out there can just walk into a book deal. The reality is, you know, we started writing, I think the, the, the I don't know if I've ever said this publicly before, James, but the, the original title, when we started working on this book proposal for Extreme Ownership, it was called the Bruiser Leader Handbook. Um, I just pulled it up the other day and I was like, oh, this is wild that that's what it was. It, it took about six months of working on this proposal. Um, so, you know, we, we write, I didn't even know what a book proposal looked like. So we had to kind of talk about, okay, who we are, what our background is, you know, what we learned, what we're going to talk about. Here's a table of contents and a description, and here's a sample chapter. And, uh, initially we, we, it was, that was kind of written the third person and that was kind of weird and it didn't make sense. And, you know, obviously if you think about your buddy who wants to talk about himself in the third person, that's not, uh, that's, that's easily made fun of, right? It's not something <laughs> we realize, Hey, that's not going to work. We're going to actually have, have to write this of like, okay, I'm going to first person from my perspective or Jocko's first person from, from his perspective. And, uh, and I think there's, uh, we kind of had to figure this stuff out, you know, and eventually the title, you know, morphed into extreme ownership, how U.S. Navy SEALs lead and win. And I think um, the first time I mentioned that was to my my good friend, Brett Stevens, uh, who was a, was a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, and uh, was was a, a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. He's now at the New York Times, but he I mentioned that title to him. He's like, that's the title. Yeah, that's what it's got to be. And I was like, OK, that's awesome. Um, that, that was an affirmation. But we floated this title to a friend of ours. Um, who was a very well-respected uh, literary uh, agent. And she said, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, this is, this writing is not good. This is, you need to, you need to go through an author. This is not, you know, you don't have an experience in the business world. Yeah. You, you, there, there needs to, you need to flesh this stuff out. Maybe try again in three or four years. So, I mean, that, that was not a good, good sign. I was like, okay, that's not good. We eventually stumbled on uh, an author who was willing to work with us Um and, uh, and, and so we, we put together the proposal, edited the proposal, uh, and worked a bunch on, on that proposal. And, you know, we eventually floated that out to, uh, the publishers and the first five major publishers that we, uh, we sent that the proposal to, uh, turned it down flat. And it was either like, it was, it was for everything as simple as like pass is, you know, an email response to, um, yeah, this writing's not good enough. You'd, you'd have to use a ghostwriter or an author to write this, this story or, Hey, we're going with a different seal book instead of this book. Um, and so, uh, we eventually got to St. Martin's press and there's a lady named Sally Richardson, who was the president of St. Martin's press at the time. Uh, and she's an amazing lady, love Sally, incredible leader herself, um, and, uh, connected us to, um, you know, our editor, uh, Mark Resnick, uh, who, who, you know, they, they believed in this project. They saw the opportunity that was there. Um, but even still we, we, we got a, you know, the advance that we were given was just absolutely minimal, um, you know, for the industry at the time. And I don't know that they had more than five or 10,000 copies printed initially in, in the first print run. So it was, it was like, you know, it was printed on very cheap paper. You could barely see the photos at the beginning of, you know, just real grainy photos. It's kind of funny to go back and look at that stuff now. And, um, and so, uh, there wasn't a massive expectation that this thing was going to actually really resonate with people, you know? And, uh, as I said, it really, thanks to, you know, the extraordinary support of people like Roger Ailes at Fox news, who believed in this concept, realized America needs to hear about, uh, and the world needs to hear about this concept of extreme ownership. This is, this is something that is important. Uh, and, and Don Imus, you know, at Imus in the morning, uh, who, who, 
constantly, you know, plugged and promoted the book and the concept of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of, of extreme ownership. I think he, he would say things like, you're an idiot if you don't hire these guys to come in, you know, to, to, uh, to teach your company. Uh, initially, uh, I miss it said, uh, he was like, when I, when I met Leif, you know, I felt like he's a guy, you know, I, I would give him my, give him my parking space, you know, if, uh, and, and so, you know, he was like, oh, he was kind of intimidated by me. And then Jocko came in and did an interview um, after I'd, I'd done a few with, with, with Imus. And, uh, and when he met Jocko, he's like, you know, I thought I'd give, give uh, Leif my parking space. Man, I just give Jocko the keys to my car. But, but, you know, it's amazing people like that, you know, who, who wanted to, to, to push this, this message out to the world. And of course, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and, and, and uh, you know, folks like that, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that understood what we were trying to do and, and pass this message on to the world. Um, and, uh, you know, created, you know, the Jocko podcast, you know, you know and, and pushed Jocko to go, go that route. And, uh, obviously he created the Jocko podcast to push, uh, you know, push, push that out to the world now. So, um, none of that stuff certainly happened overnight. Um, it took a massive amount of work to, uh, you know, to do that. We had some incredible doors open to us. Um, you know, you could certainly say that we got lucky, um, but we actually worked really, really hard to build relationships and, and to pass this message on. And, you know, I, I think I made in, in echelon front for the first, the first year I, I definitely made, I, I made well less than half my Navy paycheck in the first year of echelon front. And it wasn't a lot better than that in year two and it wasn't a whole lot better than that year three. So it really took three or four years before I really realized like, Hey, echelon front can actually pay the bills. Um, this is going to be something that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, thank God my, my wife had a great job that, that helped cover the, the bills. It was certainly cover moving the home front, you know, as we were launching uh, echelon front. But I think that, uh, you know, for anything out there, there's going to be obstacles in the way, you know, if you're trying to write a book or if you're trying to uh, launch a company or you're trying to launch a podcast or whatever that you're trying to do, there's going to be obstacles in the way. Nothing is going to uh, come easy. Um, and uh, our focus at Echelon Fund has always been impact. It's not about generating revenue. It's about delivering impact. And if, if I can deliver impact to leaders um, and I can actually uh, offer them solutions and give them actionable steps to solve problems that they're encountering in their world, no matter where the, what they may be doing, you know, in life, then then we're going to be successful. And that's the the pathway that we took. And you know, really, really, James, I mean, extreme ownership is is sold three million copies now. You know, not only because we had such you know incredible. Uh, support and effort from, you know, the initial push and spread, you know, through Fox News and I'm just in the morning and, you know, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and people like that. But if the book didn't resonate with people, it wouldn't be successful. And, and one of the things that I think resonates with people is that first chapter, you know, where Jocko is talking about this horrible blue on blue friendly fire situation uh, that, that happened. And, and that wasn't in the, the original manuscript to the book uh, that came later when the original manuscript in the book was now chapter two, no bad teams, only bad leaders about the Bud's boat crews that are competing against each other. And we swapped the leaders out. And all of a sudden the worst boat crew in the class became the best boat crew and started winning races. And we were talking about that. I was like, you know what, Jocko, we got to have a combat example here, you know, and, uh, and we need to, we, we, we need to talk about extreme ownership on the battlefield before we go to a training scenario. And I cannot think of a better example than you standing up in front of the entire task unit and taking ownership of this horrible blue on blue situation that happened. And, and Jocko's initial response was, I don't think we should write about that. I don't think we should write about that. And he talks about that now. This is, it was a hard thing to write about. It's a big black eye to put yourself on report for one of the, the worst things that can absolutely happen on the battlefield. It's bad enough to get killed by the enemy 
it's the worst scenario to be killed by your own people, right? Or have a horrible blue on blue friendly fire situation where an Iraqi soldier was killed. One of our guys was wounded and only through a miracle did we not lose, you know, six or eight of our guys um, killed on that, that operation as a result of that horrible incident. And, uh, you know, as we talked about that to Jocko's credit, he was able to detach uh, from that situation, really think about it. And, and you know, it only, it only took probably two or three weeks of discussion around this kind of a couple of times to say, you know, you're right. Let's start writing this, this chapter. And so that is really, you know, to me, right out of the gate, we're talking about a horrible mistake that happened um, and putting ourselves on report for that as a result. And uh, and I think that's that's the kind of thing that has resonated with leaders. It's, it's been impactful. So. Um, you know, I, I would, I would just encourage people to, uh, if, if you're trying to think about a book that you can write, or, or, you know, if you're launching a podcast or you want anything you're trying to do in life, if you're focused on how you can actually impact others and, and relay lessons learned, that's going to be useful and helpful to, to, to them. And I, I would attribute the success that you've had at behind the shield directly to that as well, right? Your goal is to help others and pass the lessons on, you know, there. And I think anytime that you're trying to do that. Um, you know, that's something that's going to connect and resonate with people. And, and that's always the goal at, at Islam Front. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think that that idea of the overnight success is so toxic, you know, because people get into something, they're like, well, it's been six months. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm just going to give up, you know, and hearing, you know, people that have great foundation, great connections, you know, great life story to tell still have struggles and still be told no you're not navy seal enough or you know whatever the the uh, the reason is um but you keep going and i think the real key for me that i'm still finding trying to find when it comes to the book uh, that i have found with the people that put their name to the book like josh brolin and um sebastian Junger, um is those people that believe in it and i think that's the big thing there's billions of people on this planet just because these people that you think are the key to your success in this area aren't seeing it doesn't mean that you can't find the person that will no question i guess that's absolutely spot on it's i mean there's just we had a saying in charter platoon uh from our, our our platoon chief awesome platoon chief btf tony um you know who's the the big tough frog man himself uh he's done a couple of podcasts with jocko if you've heard tony and fratty on there just just an incredible guy i mean the this is the break glass in case of war guy that you want, you know, going into combat with you. Um, and I was honored to, you know, to have him as my platoon chief. And, you know, I was his platoon commander and, and uh, just an extraordinary dude. But he always, his whole thing was everything sucks, nothing works, you know, because someone would come up with some great idea that they thought were going to solve problems. You know, and and he would say everything sucks, nothing works. You just got a BTF, right? Which means we, we had, we're going to be big, tough frogmen, and we were going to actually have to work harder than everybody else. You know, it, we were going to have to take greater risks than everybody else. We're going to have to actually physically just gut check something to, to you know to uh, to to make that possible. Um, and uh, just the way things are, right? It, it, you know, every time I hear someone saying, "Oh, this will be easy. It'll just take a few minutes," like, yeah, it, it never works like that. So, um, I, and it's easy to look at other people's success too. And, and, um, I forget who said the quote, I, it's been attributed to Mark Twain. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe that's, uh, misattributed, but, uh, I, I, the quote, something like behind every overnight success is a decade of hard work. And, and I think, uh, that's, that's true. And, and maybe even more so, um, you know, uh, in that all the time and effort to, you know, to learn these leadership lessons. I mean, that started in 2006 on the battlefield. Beautiful. Well, we're, I know we're at the kind of 90 minute mark now. There's one more area I'd love to, to put to you if you've got time. Sure. Beautiful. Um, so I got to be at the Echelon Front Muster in Orlando, which was the first one you did face to face again post COVID, which was phenomenal. Um, 
I would love, I'm not even going to kind of um, load the question first. With the first responders that you've had the opportunity to interact with, what have been some of the challenges that you've seen? Let's say specifically fire service. So what, what, what are some of the challenges that you've seen kind of nationally with a lot of these fire service leaders that are coming to the uh, echelon front and the roll calls? Yeah, look, the, the challenges are, uh, are, are immense, right? I think when, uh, when you've got people out riding in the streets, you know, through, through 2020 and burning down major uh, sections of, of major American cities, I mean, that's a, that's a real problem for firefighters, for law enforcement. Um, I think there's a, there's a recruiting issue, right? People that don't want to go into those jobs because they realize how challenging that's going to be. Um, and I, I think a lot of times that when you, you know, when you have, you know, the, the, just the, the divided, um, uh, just partisan politics, right. That take place, um, that, uh, that is often, you know, one of the biggest frictions that we see where you've got, you've got folks on the front lines that are just, um, don't feel like their leadership have, have their back. You know, um, what I've really had to do is talk about the, uh, talk, talk about the perspective, you know, and you hear us talk about perspective at monster. We talk about perspective all the time. So, you know, if, if someone's complaining to me about how their battalion chief doesn't get it or they don't understand, you know, or they're not looking out for the boys and, you know, they're just trying to suck up to the city council or, the, you know, the mayor or whatever it is, you know, I, I, have, I have to just kind of push back on that and say, hey, uh, think about how hard that battalion chief's job is. Like, think about how hard that is, you know, like, do you, you don't think they should try to have a good relationship with the mayor of the city council, regardless of whether or not you agree with them or align with them politically, those are the people that actually are allocating resources to you. So if you don't have a good job or a good relationship with them, you're not going to get what you need. You know, you're not going to be successful. So, so their job is to try to build the best relationships that they can, you know, um, with those organizations. And I, you know, I just kind of always try to talk to them about seeing perspectives. And, you know, I used to be the chief haterade drinker. I, I could speak to that because I, I, it's me. I used to be the chief haterade drinker, tasking a bruiser. You know, we're down on the front lines trying to make stuff happen, and the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the chain of command is two or three levels up from us. They don't know what's going on down here. They're just sitting, you know, behind the wire in some sandbag, you know, palace somewhere. You know, going to a movie theater and watching their films every night, or whatever it is. You know, and then you realize, like, hey, you know, I, I look. I had a great boss, like Jocko, to say, hey, do you think that? Do you think that our chain of command is just waking up in the morning and deciding how they could make our lives miserable, how they could prevent us from doing our jobs, how they could put all these processes on us or micromanage us to prevent us from actually going out and doing what we need to do to be, be successful? And of course, the answer is no. Like no chain of command is doing that. They're, they're just not. So they're doing the best they can. If they're not, if they're asking you for information, you're not, you're not doing a good enough job of getting them information. They'll lead up the chain. See the world from their perspective. If they're asking you to put some process in place that maybe you disagree with, like let's actually allow ourselves to be influenced by that process so that we can actually implement that process. And if the process is, isn't working or is far less efficient, does the chain of command want you to do something that doesn't work or is less efficient? Then implement the process so you can actually give some feedback up the chain and, and show them maybe where you can make some adjustments, you know, as a result. So, you know, it's all about just putting your ego in check. It's all about taking ownership uh, and leading up the chain. And that's one of the biggest, you know, divides that we see is just from the senior level chain of command to the troops. I, I see, we have senior leaders that come to that stuff too, and are talking about how their troops just don't get it. Obviously, if your troops don't get it, 
then why why do they not get it? You're in charge of those troops. You got to edu- educate them and help them understand, you know, what's going on. So, um, meanwhile, the front line is saying they're being micromanaged or saying that they, you know they're that the uh, you know the, the chain of command is out of touch. The good news is we've seen that pendulum, you know, that kind of went against first responders in the media and 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 most of that I think is really just on social media in the media. I think most of America. I, I said from the beginning, like, look, even you know, for our law enforcement brother, 90 percent. Of, uh, of the countries behind you. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And we've seen that pendulum swing way back, you know, the other way now. And that's not always, um, it, it's hard to discern that, you know, uh, uh, when you're out there in the job every day. But, but I, you know, you see uh, a significant appreciation of, you know, the pendulum that's swinging back, um, you know, even where there was some, some political misalignment or, you know, people trying to take a stand on stuff. Um, you know, the defund the police movement, for instance, is dead. It is dead a hundred percent across the, the United States. Um, nobody's running on the defund police movement because we see exactly, you know, everyone can see what the results of that is, right? More people getting, getting murdered, more violent crimes that are actually happening. Um, you know, innocent people that can't defend themselves a, a, as a result. Um, that's just not a platform that anybody wants to run on right now. Everyone's running away from that, you know, and trying to pretend like they didn't push that uh, if they were on that side of the fence, you know, uh, two years ago. So, you know, this is the same thing on the fire service as well, too. And I think you're getting more people that that uh, are taking a look at that. Um, and so that you're you're seeing more cities that are allocating more resources to, you know, to 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 training and, and equipment. Um, you know, on the fire service on the law enforcement side. Um, and, and I think I think you're seeing uh, more of an alignment now uh, between the senior levels of chain of command and, and those those on the front lines that are out there serving. So um, I'm very positive about that. I think sometimes I have to help those. Uh, I have to help leaders actually see that uh, as a result. And, uh, and and just not not to dig in too hard on something, but allow themselves to be influenced um, uh, so that they can actually in turn have greater influence up the chain of command. So Roger Shire was on the show, and I think he's a great example of what happens when you get someone who is at a leadership position as far as you know rank um, that can then permeate back down into their department. And it, it's something I think that, that I'd love to see in so many agencies. When Jocko was on here, the first episode I posed the situation I was in at the time, and it was funny because his response, um, there, there was a reaction to a response that was probably not what he was thinking. But um, I was saying, okay, so, you know, the, the ownership element, what if you are a responder of some sort who really is taking ownership, who's trying to, you know, own not only their own ability, their own fitness, their own education, their own um, training, but also to make positive changes in their department. But you're simply just swimming against the current. It's just constantly beaten down. And he was talking about climbing the you know, the chain of command. And, and in this particular agency, the chain of command only had about three rungs. And the people in the top ones had come, this is the fire service, one one who was the operations chief could only come through dispatch never had any, didn't have any idea about being a firefighter and then the actual chief chief came up through fire prevention so checking sprinklers and fire extinguishers and and, and exits uh, on the prevention side so you had that ego element and those individuals were never going to attend an extreme ownership you know muster at any time so what i see and i just kind of want to get your your opinion of this too what i see is some people is kind of what you were talking about at the end of your career where there are some very motivated driven responders but the reality is in that particular agency they have tried for several years to push positive change 
Um, it's actually affecting their mental health. So the other side of the conversation, this is what happened with Jocko, is he made me realize, okay, transitioning from the fire service to the same mission from outside the fire service was the answer for James Gearing. Okay, if, if I can't make a difference within, I'll make a difference on the outside. So talk to me about, you know, empowering people from the transition, whether it's the military or first responders, because I think that's another part of the ownership equation. You don't have to stay in that agency, but understanding that you, the toolbox that you've you've kind of um, uh, created through that profession, it doesn't mean as a soldier you're going to go work for a contracting firm or as, as a police officer now you're going to go work security. The world is your oyster. You could create a leadership company and write a book that would become, you know, a New York Times bestseller. So the the ownership element of owning your own path out of that profession that you're in and into something that you've always dreamed of doing. Look, I, nobody should be miserable, right? Um, and uh, but but the reality is, I, I think it's a unless you're being told to do something that just you know, so dangerous that it's going to get you or, you know, the, the people on your team killed. Um, and, uh, uh, and even then, right. That's, that's sometimes what we see or we think maybe, maybe, uh, that, that happens is, is not necessarily the case, but unless you're being told to do something that's illegal, you know, immoral, unethical, and most of the time that those things are extremely rare. Right? Those things are extremely rare. I, I think people get frustrated with their chain of command. You're talking about affecting their mental health. Look, I get that. I get that, man. It's it's, it's miserable to work with uh, with somebody who's micromanaging, somebody that's difficult. The reality is, what that that is, though, James, is a refusal to take ownership of how much control you actually have over that situation. Because I've worked with some people. I mean, if the idea that like everybody out, you know, like well, in the SEAL teams, you probably work for great leaders, and you don't understand in the fire service how difficult it is to work for this terrible battalion chief over here. You know, this captain here or whoever, you know, and the reality is I worked for, I worked for 12 commanding officers in my 13 years in the Navy, 12 different commanding officers. How many of those do you think were awesome? Probably not 12. Take a guess. What do you think? Would you, would you, well, based on my fire service career, I would say that all the officers I worked under, there was probably three that I actually would follow into a fire without question. So that's a great guess. That's that's a great guess. I would say uh, two of those uh, leaders were were uh, uh, were good. One of them was amazing. Only only one really was just an amazing leader that I would go work for again in a second. Um, only one, and uh, you know, and and probably I'd say five or six of them were. I mean, had left a lot to be desired, and there were at least there were at least. Uh, you know, two or three of them that were absolutely horrible, horrible leaders. I'm talking embarrassingly bad. Um, and I would rather light myself on fire rather than go and serve with them ever again in any capacity. You know, what I learned from Jocko is like, hey, does it do you any good to not have a good relationship with your leadership? You got to build good relationships with them. And so, you know, the idea of like, look, you you can still build good relationships with people, even if they're even if they're not a great leader, even if they're a micromanager, even if they're an egomaniac, all those things, if you take ownership, um, I can work with somebody with a big ego all day long if I just simply subordinate my ego. No factor. Easy day. What I want to do is build the same relationship with any leader that I work for. 
any leader that I work for, which is I want them to, I want them to trust me. I want them to respect my opinion on things. I want them to give me the resource that I need to accomplish my mission. And then I want them to get out of the way and let them do my job. Let me do my job. I want them to get out of the way and let me do my job. That's the goal that I'm trying to do, trying to build uh, a good relationship with the chain of command. I think those kind of things that when, when you take that attitude, you can build great relationships with anybody. And so your life actually becomes a lot better. There's a lot less stress on you when you have a better relationship with your chain of command. You know, it's just the way things are instead of actually just butting heads with people. Um, and, and so often, you know, I get a, I get a question from a first responder who is being directed by a team leader to do something that he felt was really dangerous and he refused the order. Um, and, uh, and I said, uh, and so he's telling me like, well, what happens when you get a bad order, you know, from, from, uh, from a bad boss. And I was like, I was like, well, let's talk about it. So, so I'm, I'm asking some questions. I was like, I want to understood. He's telling me that, that guy's telling me to do something. It's really dangerous. I'm not doing it. I was like, okay, well, what happened? What happened? Like, what, what was, what was the result? Well, come to find out the team leader executed the order and did exactly what he was, uh, he was asking this person on the team to do who refused the order. And I was like, well, what happened? Did he, did he get killed? I was like, nope. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, so uh, what was the result? And it turned, come to find out, like it was, it was, so I was like, so, so we start digging around, we go around and around about this. And initially the question was asked to me as if a hundred percent, this guy was in the right to push back on this order. And I was like, it sounds to me like maybe you were incorrect. And he was like, I mean, it was like a slap across the face for this guy, you know? I was like, because um, he's really, the, the premise of what he was asking me was, how do I rebuild this relationship after I had to refuse to, to, you know, to follow this order? And I was like, the way you rebuild that relationship is you go into your, you go into your team leader and say, hey team, hey, team leader, you were right and I was wrong in this situation. You told me to do this. I thought it was too dangerous. You obviously had a different perspective and you were able to execute it and, uh, and, and everything was fine and we got the problem solved. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I was, I was incorrect. And I need to do a better job of understanding, you know, how you're seeing things from your experience level and, and what we're doing to mitigate risk so that we're aligned, you know, in that, in that category. And that hurts, man, that stings the ego, right. In a big way. But if, if that guy does that and follows the guidance that we talked about, he's going to be able to rebuild that relationship with, with a boss that he was actually butting heads on. He dug in on something saying like, I'm right, you're wrong. Cause he was absolutely assured that he was in the right. And, and he actually wasn't in that case. Right. So I think so often that's a common human tendency that we have. You know, the boss doesn't get this. He's telling me to do something. That doesn't make sense. Instead of actually, instead of actually thinking it through, like, well, let me think through from the boss's perspective. Like what, why are, why is he asking me to do this? And we had that conversation. I was like, does your team leader want you to get killed? Does he want you to die? Does he want your team to die in the situation? And, and the, the answer is, of course not. Of course not. So why is he asking you to do that? What is he saying that you're not seeing? You know, why does he think that this is actually a, that this is actually okay and an acceptable level of risk when, when you don't. And, and so all it takes is just simply putting your ego in check and keeping your mind open to that stuff. And I think, you know, look, if you're in a miserable situation and, and, um, and, and you decide you want to leave and do something else for sure. There's a lot of ways to serve. There's a whole lot of ways to serve and you can do that and have influence on the outside. But, you know, look, you, you, your job, wherever you are, you're going to work with human beings that you don't like, that you don't immediately have good relationships with, and you're going to have to take ownership. You're going to have to put your ego in check, and you're going to have to build relationships with them no matter where you go in life. So um, I think, you know, that's the power of extreme ownership. And if you take that attitude, 
Um, you're going to be able to build relationships, effective relationships, build effective teams that can move forward, solve problems and win no matter what you're doing. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's just, that's the power of extreme ownership. When we, we oftentimes don't realize how much control we have over a situation that we might be blaming on the boss or blaming on our chain of command or blaming on the culture of the team. And, um, and there's a reality is we got a lot of, we got a lot of control for that. If we simply take ownership. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. So, as I mentioned, you know, the, the muster in Orlando last year was phenomenal. Um, as we go into 2022, tell me about you know, the musters that you've got coming up. And also, I think you've um, brought roll call back as well. Is that right? Yeah, we've been doing a number of roll calls, uh, which is awesome um, as well. That's our first responder focused training. And we'll kind of, you know, we'll, we'll be hosted by a, uh, a particular fire department or police department in, in, a, in a various city. And and uh, we've done a number of those. Um, JP Dunnell and Cody Gandy have had leads on those. I know Cody, Cody and JP have been on the, on the show here with you. Jason Gardner as well, just was uh, part of the last one as, as well. So great training. Um, and uh, we've got uh, Danny Zeem on our team now, who's a, a longtime friend of, of JP's, who's a, uh, a longtime firefighter and uh, paramedic uh, who jumped over to the SWAT side. Um, as well, uh, supporting uh, his, his SWAT team as a paramedic as well. So cool to have some first responders on our staff now that can speak directly, you know, to how these principles apply in the first responder world as a first responder, which, which I think is great. Um, and there'll be a number of those that are going on in various cities and people can go to echelonfront.com and, and check out, you know, our events page. Uh, we have two musters we're doing next year on the schedule currently. Um, the, we're going back to Orlando in May um, uh, next year, and uh, we'll be in Dallas again uh, in uh, October of next year as well. So there may be another one coming at some point. Uh, we've had some demand signal to do one in the UK. Uh, we've done one in Australia back in 2019 before the, the world got locked down. Uh, that was in December, 2019, kind of before everything just shut down for the pandemic. But, um, so, you know, we'll see if, if we do another international one, if another one pops up, uh, but the musters are awesome. The roll calls are awesome. I mean, anytime we get to interact with leaders, uh, any capacity, um, it, it's a, it's a great thing too. We're, we're, uh, we're looking at a partnership with Lexapol right now. Um, you know, that, uh, so many, uh, first responder organizations are already using, I think they have 2 million first responders that are part of their, um, you know, their platform. And so we're, we're going to be, uh, putting our leadership courses on the Lexapol platform. Uh, and we'll look, we'll, we'll see what that long-term partnership looks like, you know, with them. Um, and obviously extreme ownership Academy, you know, is, is that's the, the, the most scalable version of how we can reach, people around the world, um, you know, and I think for folks that, that we meet once a week on there with a live Zoom meeting to talk, you know, put out 15, 20 minutes of some leadership content and then open it up for Q&A. Usually have four or 500 leaders on that, that uh, on that platform, um, you know, once a week. And we have foundation course that are on there. And it's just a, an awesome community of leaders uh, helping each other solve problems where you can talk to, to leaders like uh, Chief Roger Shy, who's an incredible leader, um, you know, uh, and proves this or our uh, Chief PJ Langmaid. You know, these are, you know, uh, these are folks that are that are coming out of the first responder world, um, you know, in, in police and, and, and firefighter uh, organizations that are leading departments that are that are really implementing these lessons uh, learned. And they've proven, you know, the power of, uh, of implement laws of combat, a, a team that covers a move for each other, that keeps things simple, that prioritizes and executes, that, that focuses on decentralized command. I remember when I saw um, the first time I went up to Pocatello PD with, with Chief Shy, and I asked him, you know, what he would do in the event of a big active shooter situation or, um, and, and, you know, how he would set up. And I talked to, we worked with hundreds of different uh, police departments and, and, and fire departments uh, over the years now. And, uh, and, and so his answer to me was, 
my guys got that handle. My guys got that handle. I'll look to them to see how they're going to lead. Not like, hey, where am I going to go set up my command, you know, headquarters so that I can manage, you know, manage this scene, you know. Uh, but he's got a trained team of leaders, and he's proven that, you know, through situations. Um, they had an incident a few months ago where where his officers responded, and two of his officers who were shot, um, you know, by a well armed individual who was there to really you know, uh, proceed with, you know, death by cop um, and try to take out as many police officers as he could. Two of his officers who were shot continued to respond and maneuver on an individual and, and neutralize the threat. Um, unbelievable uh, to, to see that, you know, that's, that is a well-trained organization that is that where everybody's a leader, you know, and leads with decentralized command and just a testament to his leadership. And of course, PJ Lang made it black forest fire is a, the same way up in Colorado. Um, those are two, just two of, of, Dozens and dozens of, of awesome leaders that we get to work with, um, and uh, just uh, just awesome to see that. So, you know, anybody wants to find out more about what we do, uh, go to exxonfront.com. If you want to learn more about the Extreme Ownership Academy, go to extremeownership.com and uh, come to a muster, come to a roll call. Uh, love to help you solve problems of leadership and help you realize the power of extreme ownership, how much control you actually have of everything in your world, everything that impacts your mission. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I can attest to the four departments I ended up working for and I moved you know, because of family. Anaheim, California was incredible. And that was by far my best time in the fire service. And it was that, you know, well-led, trusted, well-trained department where, you know, as you said, you were just trusted to go and do your thing as the crew. And there was none of this micromanaging. Conversely, the last place I touched on before was the polar opposite. And What's sad to me is if a department is run well, and like you said, you had ownership in all of the ranks from you know firefighter all the way up, it makes the profession so much more fun. And you're obviously going to you know save a lot when it comes to the health side. You're going to improve mental health and physical health, but also just the the camaraderie and you know the the overall. Um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for now? Anyway, yeah, it it just makes it such a an enjoyable place to work, and then you leave that profession then. Looking back, going, wow, that was amazing. The problem I had is I experienced that and then I went to the other extreme and then was like, okay, this this can be like this. You know, let's all work together and try and elevate this. And sadly, in that particular situation, that wasn't the environment. And Roger is, is someone I hold on a pedestal as far as, look, this is how it should be, you know, with everything from, you know, the, the realism in training, the fitness standards. I mean, you can actually have points for your promotional process based on your fitness ability, the jujitsu, the, you know, the, the tactical firearms training versus just qualifying. These all, you know, combine to make a, a police force. And as you said, in that situation, those two officers survive versus they may well have been buried by the family. No question. They don't just survive, but they prevent other innocent people from getting killed, right? But because they did what they needed to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it makes all the difference in the world, you know, and I think what Chief Shai has been able to do at Pocatello is amazing, right? This small city of Pocatello, Idaho. I mean, he has the, the, he has key leaders from the largest police departments in the world calling him, um, you know, across major, you know, from major cities calling him and asking him how he's doing this, how he's implemented these, uh, you know, th these leadership principles um, and, and built such a successful team. It's, it's pretty awesome to see this stuff works. Absolutely. Well, one more thing for people that want to find you online, where are the best places on, on the web or on social media? Yeah, you can go to Leif Babin on, on you know, Twitter or Facebook or real Leif Babin on Instagram. 
Um, and of course, Echelon Front is, uh, you know, our website has all the information about what we do um, and what we teach. And, and you can buy, you know, extreme ownership, that kind of leadership and uh, th- those books, uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, so just a uh, lot, lot of information out there. Um, and uh, if, if you want more, go get some. Beautiful. Well, Leif, I want to say thank you so much. I hope I hope we went to some different places. I feel like we kind of went down some rabbit holes and that's my favorite kind of conversation. But again, your perspective, not only standing, you know, side by side as an echelon front founder, obviously with Jamie as well. Um, and, you know, but working with military, working with the, the, the corporate side, the first responder professions that I adore, what you guys are doing for my profession is incredible. And, the, and to tell your story and bring the the resources and and the uh, the skills that you offer through the muster through the books through the online platforms is imperative so i just i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today i appreciate it james again thank you for what you do uh I, it's an amazing mission and i think you you certainly have an impact in the world um out there supporting our first responder communities and uh, honored to be on with you i uh, love the conversation and uh, hope to do it again sometime